everybody, and welcome to another episode of Ega Night, two amateur film scholars journey through Japanese cinema. I am your co-host, Chris Lucy Antonio, and join with me, as always, is Aruba. And so, yeah, yeah, go ahead. So, Chris, I understand that our current film, <laughs> you didn't have too much to say about it, did you? <laughs> you know, the first episode we did was a seminal cult film of the present-day Japanese canon. The second one we did was a classic of the new wave form. <laughs> this one, by comparison alone, just kind of feels like a throwaway. <laughs> I'm not judging it for that. There are plenty of ways we can attack a blockbuster, for very ways of inquiry we can put, give into it, but and we'll see how, if we can with today's episode but you know going through it watching this film i kind of have one sentence underlined several times and in bold in my notes i think i probably can predict what that sentence is <laughs> are you sure because it's quite the winner this is it this is the this is the title that you put on the box of the dvd to sell it Okay, um, I have a feeling it's about a character. <laughs> nope, no, it's not actually. Oh, okay. This is... And in that case. So, next time you pick up a copy of D uh, DVD, a copy on DVD of today's episode, you're going to see this blazoned on top of it with my name, Agonite, below it. <laughs> this is Phantom Thread for Idiot Teenage Girls. <laughs> Just they stamp that right on there. We can stop the episode right here. We're done. <laughs> See ya. So yes, uh, today is our contemporary episode. Uh, it's our, uh, we said the last episode, it's a revolving docket where we do classic, then contemporary, classic, then contemporary, so on and so forth, till we cover the everything of Japanese cinema, which we'll do one day. <laughs> yep. And today it is Paradise Kiss, directed by Takahiko Chinjo in 2011, based on a very extremely popular manga by Ai Yazawa, which was serialized from 1999 to 2003. Now, Aruba, you are the primary reason we are talking about Paradise Kiss today. <laughs> I'd like to um, proceed with my statements by saying I chose Battle Royale as well, so... <laughs> no, 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 you don't get so... That was a joint one for our debut episode. We... We talked about what we wanted to begin. I with. put it on the list, Chris. I was the one who typed it in the Excel sheet. Okay. Okay, fair enough. But like, like I wasn't gonna put it there anyway. All right. Well, the reason I had actually chosen this film is I do remember watching it back when it was around its release, and I do remember its popularity. That was the one thing that struck out to me. Uh, this movie blew up in Japan. Um, it was. It was because it was uh, focused so much on the Shibuya culture, Shibuya fashion culture. You know, it was magnified all over Shibuya. Uh, it really was the film that teenage girls would go to see. And going to see a movie in Japan is not actually, it's not actually that common because movies are kind of expensive there. Yeah, um, there, like uh, some demographics recently of uh, theater experiences in Japan has showed like a sliding scale since like the late 90s uh especially after the whole studio crash it's just been further and further hits to the industry like i on the occasion you get a film that does uh, some extremely well business if it's like attached to a popular anime or manga and uh, but most of them are just don't get the attention that you think they would yeah also you do have to really pull in those stars if you want the ratings because there ain't like, there's not a lot of, um, I guess, phenomena for little uh, for teenagers or any kind of Japanese demographic to go see these films. If anything, uh, going to a movie in Japan is kind of a sort of lavishing date night, if anything. I mean, here, I mean, I guess here, you know, going to a movie and going to dinner afterwards, you know, that's a normal date night. But in Japan, uh, going to a movie, you know, it's considered a pretty special date night because it does require a little bit of planning and money and it does um and you really gotta like know you're gonna like the film 
before seeing it. And that's and that's why I particularly chose this one because it kind of it boomed. I don't have the exact numbers on me at the moment, but I do know it boomed with uh, moviegoers once released. Yeah, I couldn't find any information on how well it did at the box office. I know it had like a in when you know converted to American. Uh, like around a three to four million dollar budget, which is considered like pretty standard. Uh, and I'm guessing a lot of that went to uh, the fashion choices and the clothing department for this film. Yeah, it is a movie about fashion, so expect all the all the fashions, all of them, because they're great. It's a it's a very comprehensive look at the fashion industry, at least from a uh, naive high schoolers perspective because that is like uh, the chosen audience for this uh so just a little bit backstory on it it was like we said directed by takahiko shinjo uh who is uh, known for these type of high school set romance films uh most of them being adaptations of either novels or manga such as heavenly forest i give my first love to you and your lie in april uh most of those will not be coming up on this podcast thankfully <laughs> and you yeah, never know and the story itself is, centers around a questioning high school girl uh, who is being pressured from all angles about her entrance exams into the next uh, secondary education and stumbles upon or is technically kidnapped by a gorilla offshoot of a strange academy who are designing clothes as their term end project and... From... It just sounds like she got kidnapped by gorillas. <laughs> Gorilla, G-U-E-R, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, like eventually she's war warms up to them, becomes their uh, chosen model, and has her eyes open to the wonders of fashion and realizes that maybe school isn't all there is to life. And she adamantly admits at the very, very end, spoiler, not really, that she wants to be a model. So she does. Isn't that, isn't that such an uplifting story? Oh. No, no, like, seriously, let's think about it. Isn't it nice to, like, <laughs> focus in on a high school dropout who can just get by in her looks? I know, Isn't right? that refreshing? There, there's just so not enough great. films like that. God. Exactly. Not like, like, not like she went from tripping on a runway to having cover after cover after cover after cover and going to New York to have a cover after cover, 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 and cover, that cover, I can't. That's right, teenage girl. You can be like this, too. As long as you're pretty. Yeah, that's what matters in life. Shut up. <laughs> like, the, you, can, you can tell by this little intro here that I was not the biggest fan of it. Uh, this was an artifact of uh, Aruba's teenage years, not mine. Excuse uh, me, I wasn't a teenager when this was... when I saw it. Young adult but... years, then. How about that? <laughs> sure. <laughs> And I personally could not get behind it. Uh, it just wasn't speaking my languages, and the language it was speaking is uh, dumbed-down teenage puppy love. And I'm sorry, Aruba, I was just <laughs> not a fan of this one. I, I don't want to uh, grill your selection here. I mean, well, the last time I saw it was you're right, early 20s, very, very early 20s, and it, I mean, back then, I actually cannot remember what this movie did to me. All I can remember is the soundtrack. The soundtrack just made me so, so, so very happy. Um, I still remember all the lyrics of, uh, <laughs> of the song, which you rudely interrupted when I first Skyped you for the episode, Chris, so thank you for that. Um, oh, anytime. <laughs> hey, at least I didn't sing It's the Time to Disco, okay? So... You will not, you will not <laughs> pollute this podcast with that filth. Oh, watch me, you son of a bitch. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, this. so watching it again, it felt like an entire new film for me. To, like, I don't remember the actual feeling of the film. I don't remember... I remember some key plot points definitely remember the ending however it was the music that kind of drew, drew me in and like this has kind of been a recurring theme I realize I really do focus on music quite a bit when it comes to um, these films and the feeling behind these films 
does lie in the uh, music for me. Um, well, and there's a point yeah. to that that uh, we were t discussing earlier about how uh, films don't exactly get seen in Japan unless they have a uh, unless they have a tie-in to either the successfulness of the stars and their ability to draw audiences, or alternatively, if there has a if there is a lot of cross media. Uh, appeal to it so that is where you get these extremely popular pop songs that are released uh, contemporaneously with the film in order to sell those tickets and paradise kiss was no different uh the opening and closing songs were uh huge charts charters in uh japan and mm -hmm. in addition to done this, by the done by the singer yui a very popular artist uh i believe a lot of her shit is on spotify if you're interested listener uh, mm -hmm. It's a lot of Please like, do. it's a lot of very glossy, uh, heavily produced pop music. If you're into that stuff, uh, on occasion I am. And in addition to that, there obviously was the manga uh, that was selling those tickets, and there was a four episode mobile drama uh, that served as a prequel to the film. Right, and the manga itself is what probably drew in most of the audiences, despite uh, Kitagawa Keiko's popularity at the time. I do think it was the, um, because Yazawa Ai, absolutely one of the top-tiered manga artists in Japan. In the uh, Jose genre, yes. In the Jose genre, genre. And she is very, very, very well known for the, compl like, the complexity of her stories. Uh, she is somebody who can delve into the uh, taboo, like, taboo for Japanese societal standards and normalize them. She is very on point with being able to kind of go into the psychological female mind. And unfortunately, this film could not. <laughs> no, this film really lets her vision down, I feel. Uh, because I checked out like the first two or three chapters of uh, Yazawa's original manga and also watched the uh, couple, first couple of episodes of the anime series that was released uh, in 2005 by Aniplex and Studio Madhouse and uh, you can see a stark difference between how that adaptation and this adaptation handles her ideas because right. with the anime uh, director Osamu Kobayashi I believe worked directly with uh, Yuzawa and had her approve all of the changes that they made to it Yes, that's and that was probably the key thing that um, I would assume the producers here made the biggest mistake of. If like I don't know, I actually don't know behind the scenes if they decided to have her on as a consultant or not. But I do think uh, her input was not as received here, especially with the uh, I guess the production value that the film tried to exhibit with uh, its Warner Brothers. Um, kind of aesthetic well i think that's because uh at least with the version that we watched um this was a venture that was heavily predicated on the idea that it's going to be a cross-national uh hit that it was going to be able to be exported beyond japan uh, yeah. th that's why i feel like a lot of the story is dumbed down that's why a lot of the details are missing here or there and that's why there's this cabal of producers behind it like just on their uh Wikipedia page for Paradise Kiss, the live-action film, there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, like at least ten. At least ten separate people holding the copyrights uh, and listed as production companies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's, I think that's where they make their mistakes, you know? They don't exactly, they have all these voices coming in to make sure it, it becomes a hit among uh, its selected audience that they kind of lose Yazawa's original uh, storytelling ability in here. And that's why uh, that's why it also kind of suffers from this uh, thing that, uh, or at least this affliction that you see when you watch a lot of contemporary Japanese films, especially the ones that are, like, designed to be box office hits. Uh, it's like a critique that you can give to any nation's uh, blockbuster cinema, but it just feels so stagnant, so unmistakably bland. Yeah. And it all goes, and it all comes back to once again, like I think we discussed in the first episode, the actual experience of sitting down and reading these works in depth and also being able to watch these works in depth. We're, si we're sitting here for a two-hour movie and we're going to get 
bits and pieces cut off here and there and we're gonna get stuff mushed in so that so that they like we we get our money's worth so to say um whereas when you pick up a manga you're gonna be sitting down and reading it fully and be immersed into the experience of reading which could like one manga could take a day or so and a whole series or volumes of manga could take weeks right and that's not to say that like a manga or anime adaptation released to theaters as like a live action treatment can't uh be worthy of its own merits Uh, absolutely not plenty of the films that i've loved in the past uh that have been released in the past 10 years are manga adaptations are like uh anime adaptations because that's that's how you get films made in japan is if they are associated with something and it's the difference between a good director handling that material and a bad director handling that material like i can't say whether or not uh, takahiko shinjo is a good director or not this is my first film that i've seen by him and yeah i'm not seeing it guy like i'm <laughs> he does try to kira kira it up or he tries to make it quite sparkly so to say oh um... man those the transitions in this film. lens flares guys lens flares <laughs> what a hack <laughs> like it's like like i said in many episodes before i don't like to call things emotionally manipulative but like it's really trying to give you a sense of whimsy for this woman's journey uh as a high school dropout becoming a model and it's so it's so put on yeah I definitely agree with that. It it is I like watching it the second time. I now real, especially graduating now, I now see the um, capital gain it tried to uh, encompass here. It really did try to um, make this the box office hit. It box office hit it was, um, and unfortunately had to suffer the message very 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 much. I'm pretty sure had to suffer in the it, process. It's like surgically twee. Like, every decision you see is, like, so so designed <laughs> to move you in a very specific way. It's like, there's no ambiguity ambiguity to how uh, Shinjo operates here. He is, like, sticking to a very outlined script, probably from those ten producers looming over his shoulders. Yeah, I mean, it does miss the mark. But, um, I would say that... This film kind of encompasses Japanese culture in a very, very, very standard way. Um, it is able to kind of... I do have, like, some vocabulary here that that is brought up in the film quite a bit that sort of encompasses the Eastern, uh, the Eastern area or the Eastern culture behind a lot of the decisions made in the film. And the, uh, these are things that we discussed this earlier... Uh before we started the podcast, these are things that would be fairly obvious to uh, Japanese students and filmgoers watching the film, but not so, uh, not not necessarily recognizable to Western audience, correct? Correct. And these are things that, like, um, that may even uh, contributed to the success of the actual film itself in Japan. Um, so the first word I have here is ronin. And no, not 47 ronins, Chris, um, but um, the actual word ronin, which means wanderer or drifter, is used to describe a Japanese high school student who has not done well on their exams or has failed them or failed their university entrance exams and thus um, is in kind of a limbo between staying in high school and improving and not going to university or work after high school. So in this film... Uh, Yukari, the, Yukari, the main character who wants to be who wants to become a model at the very end, she has suffered her entire life from the pressure of her mother and fears becoming a ronin. And we see her studying all throughout um, the movie, even when she's in the middle of like modeling or in the middle of the house. She we we really really have it implanted in our brains that this little girl is a student first and foremost that's a it's like a common trope of uh most anime manga japanese media overall is because like the main audience would be students of the same nature and in case you didn't realize listener uh japanese is a very uh studious nation they uh their school systems are incredibly militant uh rigorous rigorous and a lot of their 
future prospects are based on their test scores. So uh, unlike any other kind of culture, they hammer you early on that the, your education is to be taken seriously. And that's why Yukari's whole departure from that and giving it up so easily is so shocking. Absolutely. It also, um, it's also interesting to note that high school is actually optional in Japan, but around 95% of students, I heard it's probably dropping though, 90, 95% of middle, middle school students opt to go and graduate. So... And your placement within those schools is based on entrance exams. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. All about the entrance exams. So from elementary school into middle school, from middle school into high school, and from high school into university. So those entrance exams are first and foremost for the Japanese student. And every, you know, and that's how the teenage girl is able to relate to Yukari, Yukari because they also fear. They don't want to be a ronin, <laughs> as uh, cool as that sounds. And... But they don't want oh, to be. Man, this, this you... movie would be so much better if Yukari just had a sword. Exactly, right? You that know, would solve you could... so many of her problems. Maybe leather. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Everybody out there, if you're making a teen uh, novel or teenage like manga or something, give your main character a sword. <laughs> Why not? Why not? I, I would appreciate a sword, but yeah, unfortunately, having a sword may not be the most legal way of saving her from being a ronin, but... Ah, we'll deal with that later. <laughs> yeah. So, there is that. Now, they also, um, in addition to this uh, kind of ronin experience, they exhibit the pressure from her mother. Uh, her mother is quite overbearing in comparison to a lot of other Japanese parents in relation to, uh, to her. they do. Japanese parents do encourage their children to study. They enroll them in juku or cram school, which is a school that's after school so that they can do more school and do better in school because school, right? Yeah, I was just going to bring that up, actually. If, listener, if you ever watched an anime, you've probably heard that as a plot point here or there. Like, it's just a <laughs> passing thing of like, oh, wait, I'm late for cram school. Uh, like, I've, I'm just re-watching uh, Ping Pong the Animation, and I forgot, like, one of the characters has to go to cram school because it just brings it up like, ah, there it is. Yeah, you know, so, you know, and the uh, pressure from parents is very much a very Eastern kind of um, experience. Uh, I relate to it with my Eastern background. I um, also, <laughs> almost everybody else. The thing is with our Eastern background, we are taught to please our parents as much as possible. And that is our own pleasure. If our parents are happy, we are happy because our seniors are very much important to us mm -hmm. it's like so. it, it's almost a universal thing but like uh because everyone has those kind of feelings of wanting to do well by their parents but it is not as enforced or not even close to being as relevant to the culture as it is as it is in most eastern uh, nations mm -hmm. and this is and... this is why like uh her relationship with her mother is so fraught and distant uh even though personally i don't buy it uh, it, it's kind of condensed down to one scene of Yukari's mother hitting her after she falters on her studying schedule. And I like, I feel like there's a, there's a way to hammer home this, uh, this idea of exterior forces of pressure on our main character a bit better. And Paradise Kiss just kind of elides over that. Yeah, I think um, that scene in particular, it did kind of... In a way, a little bit, like, it was very underwhelming because one slap and she's gone to the guy who tries to rape her. Um, like... Okay, you just opened a whole yeah. can of worms right there with this film. Oh, yeah. This this is where, like, the problematic... This is where I'm like, wait, I don't remember that happening. Why that happening? Excuse me. This is where you go, um, like, wow, this movie's really 2011, huh? No, not even 2011. This movie is so is very very much 1978 in that like in this respect, okay? Wait, wait, wait uh, you're, you're saying it's not okay for you to move <laughs> in with your like potential rapist? You know, I mean like when we go back to last week at at the very least um he what was his name in it? And Junpei felt bad about nearly raping his woman, so a 1964 movie just got a little more progressive than this 2011 one, but... Oh, I would absolutely 
prefer to hang out with Nikki Junpei than George Koizumi. Koizumi, darn it. What is up with him? Ugh. Like, okay. So basically, what has happened is Koizumi decides to take decides to take this underage high school girl to a uh, Rabu Oteru or a love hotel. And listener, if you, uh, if you haven't seen the movie, uh, George <laughs> is the head of the Paradise Kiss. That's the group that we were talking about earlier. He is the head designer for them and is pretty much in charge of their entire future, dependent on their project and how well they do. And exactly. He is the stereotypical asshole genius where he puts himself above all he works with, despite it being a collaborative effort, and can only operate on his own wavelength, and everyone else just has to adjust to it. Exactly. And then they try and give him the excuse that he was born to a rich creep and thus does not know how to cope properly, but... The film does I not mean... give him a hard enough time. He, he it... never has to answer for any of his horrible behavior, either to Yukari or to the rest of his teammates. There are, there are multiple times in this film they are working on a design that he has made for them and he just asked them to drop it and said, no, this is the design now. Mm-hmm. You get, like, uh, a friend of mine was telling me at University of Waterloo that if you don't like your partner who's, like, uh, responsible for your 70% uh, grade group project, you can elect to kick them out and submit that to the professor. And mm-hmm. I, And I wanted... I wanted Isabella, I wanted uh, Miwako, I wanted Arashi to do that to him. I wanted Mutiny George... Mutiny so hard. I wanted George to be kicked to the goddamn curb. He is evil. He he is kind of, he is rather disgusting. He, more disgusting than I realized initially, especially with what's going on right now with the Me Too movement, right? Oh, this, uh, this character would not survive the Me Too movement. Like, absolutely not. Or at the very least, they would ask to answer... They ask him to answer for his decisions, but the ending we'll get into later, uh, because this is one of many endings of what Paradise Kiss has in its different media interpretations. Uh, yeah, we don't see any of that. We don't see uh, him being held oh, yeah. accountable. So you're, you were saying about the Love Hotel. Yeah. So at the Love Hotel, he decides that he has needs that he need, like sexual needs that he needs to. Um, enforce onto this poor little underaged high school tiny little girl um so he decides to basically con- like hold her down on the bed and as she struggles they have this um i can only describe it as a weird ass conversation if anything chris uh they talk about uh like how he needs to have what he wants, and she she tells him that I don't care about your dresses. Uh, y- this uniform is something that I worked hard for, and I will wear it with pride, way more than any of your dresses. Uh, well, and, with... and keep in mind that the context of this conversation is him pinning her to a bed. Yeah. P- she's pinned to a bed, and this is what she declares, and. Um, to be quite honest, I was kind of seeing a little too much red for me to, um, analyze when exactly he lets her up, but it allows, like, having his, um, I guess pride of dressmaking attacked like that allow, like, makes him back off, and she's able to get up and go to Juku afterwards. And (laughs) this doesn't change the fact that, uh... Because this is this is a plot point, I believe, in the manga. Uh, this this is also prevalent in the anime. Uh, George is just like this, and you you see the thing is with a live action adaptation is you can cut things. It's not hard to do. This is not a prevalent scene. This is not like a very uh, important thing to his character. We already know George is a manipulative, gaslighting asshole. We don't need this included, and uh. I don't want to like plug another podcast uh, on our show, but go ahead, do it. <laughs> the series We Hate Movies, an excellent uh, bad movie podcast that I have become a Patreon uh, Patreon subscriber of and have loved their content for years. Uh, one of the hosts puts this idea forth that uh, rape in your movie is a very powerful spice. 
if like you envision your uh movie as a gumbo now adding that spice changes the gumbo forever now it either adapts to it or ruins it because you can't take that spice out again it's mixed in it's gone so for the rest of this film we have that we have that spice in in there and it's just not going away it colorizes everything every interaction that yukari and him have from now on and i know it seems like we are dwelling on this moment but it comes the fuck out of nowhere yeah especially because later on yukari after like i said getting slapped by her mother decides to move out she decides to go to her potential rapist's house um which yeah i'm like i'm just like no no and she would definitely get victim blamed in japan because victim blaming is prevalent um but after all george is the adult in the situation um so he, his age uh, is left a little ambiguous isn't it like we don't it's pretty it's pretty ambiguous but we know he's not in like he's not in high school he's definitely at the um in, at the academy yazawa academy of arts it's like a yeah. it's a very stereotypical uh vision of what a liberal arts college would be it's kind of weird to see that uh crossover there yeah it's a um it, it reminded me a lot of life like of life at laurier which um we were i was actually able to receive a comparison of japanese universities too because my friend actually went to an art college in japan and she was saying that the um that the atmosphere at laurier was quite lively and this is what i assume is like the standard for uh college life here but even though she was at an art school it was definitely not like the one we see in paradise kiss and it, it like it really did reflect quite a north american kind of standard speaking of north american standard did you notice his american car steering wheel on the what side on the left side yeah i, I did it's a it's a strange little thing that has uh i i assume is completely predicated on selling this film to uh western audiences and getting that crossover appeal but um and especially with like their their names like George, we are calling him George right now. Yeah, George. Uh, Miyako Miyako calls um, Yukari Caroline and Isabella. Isabella, yep, Isabella and Isabella calling her uh, Carrie, right? So they do try to uh, they do their best to kind of encompass the whole North American fashion, uh, like you know, model names kind of dealio here um and a lot of like uh, a lot of japanese specifics are kept off the table in terms of like their fashion like uh george very much can be seen dressed as a westerner with his stupid fucking fedora <laughs> my lady <laughs> that's what he does like that <laughs> like you make that joke but that is his the character like that yeah, is the I essence mean... of his character it really really is um Though, kind of like, I want to say, I don't want to say shining light, but it really is kind of a shining light that, um, in, uh, George's storyline is his parent. well, his parents are introduced as his birth mother and her lover, and that he was born to a rich, uh, creep who got his mistress pregnant, um, but later on in the, um, film, the father is seen talking to Isabella to see is his son actually good? He does not want to see his son to fail. He wants to make sure his son is actually going to be okay with making these women women's dresses. Um, which, that actually kind of touched my heart. That really actually touched my heart because um, it does put into the perspective that, like, it not only explained uh, Yukari's mother's kind of point of view as well, she does not want to see her daughter fail, but it also made me realize that my parents are kind of worried for my own future, especially with the career choices I'm making being very unconventional. Um, they are actually talking, like, they're actually taking the time to uh, talk to others to see, hey, is my child a child actually going to be okay in this weird world, you know? Yeah, and, like, a, the Japanese nation is uh, very stereotypically 
seen as being a family nation. It pervades almost all aspects of their uh, their film history, their media history. Uh, there is like this uh, obsession with the ideas of family, of like a familial unit, and how the nation is supposed to be reflected upon that. So, yeah, like uh, there are traces of that here because it can't it can't shed the cult the cultural context of where it was made, but. For George, like I'm, I'm mm -hmm. not counting it. I like, yeah. My sympathies are at an all-time low, and as the film keeps going on and on, they just keep sinking lower and lower. <laughs> and then that kind of like ties into what I was the other um, vocabulary word I wanted to discuss into detail, which is cabedon. <laughs> cabedon. Cabedon. Cabedon, guys. Cabedon, my. No, I was going to make something very inappropriate. Okay, but... Um, yeah, I'm, I'm the fucking dirty one. Yeah, I'll, like, I'll leave... You're the one that keeps it clean. This is our balance. <laughs> right, so I'll... Try to keep it pure here. So, cabidon, in short, um, is a maneuver done by... It's like a trend maneuver done by Japanese guys where they literally corner the woman into a wall and place their hand close... <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay, they cl they um place their hand on the wall and bring their face close to the woman. And if they want a double cabezon, they put both hands um uh, on the wall, basically entrapping the women for the lack of a, for a lack of a better word, and bring their face close to talk to them. So and... cabezon, otherwise known as rape culture, is a. <laughs> No, okay. No, this is where I have to do the divide between actual cabidon and rape culture because cabidon in itself um here, here I'm going to I'm going to try and explain it the best I can um based off of what people have said to me about this. Uh Japanese people and, to say Japanese women. And listener, you have absolutely seen this uh outline or like uh, what this looks like in several manga, several uh, anime. You just just envision a like a male protagonist or like a male character putting their arm against a wall, and the and the like female uh, character being like trapped usually between him in the wall. Usually very tiny as well. Mm -hmm. So in order to kind of um, understand that imagery there, so. My friend, my Japanese friend in particular, who does the opening uh, vocals for our uh, for our show there, so shout out to her. Hey. <laughs> hey, Sayaka. Uh, she has um, told me that this this maneuver is quite sexy to Japanese women, if anything. It does assert dominance, but she would not want it from a stranger. She would want it from somebody she is very familiar with and somebody who looks good. There's a phrase in Japan in Japan called tadashi ikemen dake, which means but just good-looking guys, <laughs> which uh, you know, translated that sounds very um quite sexist, but nonetheless, this so she like in this in this particular instance, having like Kabedon done to you by somebody who's familiar would, you know, in kind of encompass like a kind of um, play put them in kind of a playful mood, if anything. Um, and this instance in particular, like it, they would find it very sexy but kind of playful. This instance in particular, the reason why I'm bringing this up is not because of that horrid, um, nasty little rape scene that we almost rape scene that we got in the love hotel but in particular there is a particular scene where george i keep trying not to call him by his actor's name so forgive me i will take a pause but george wraps a yellow sheet around yukari and brings his face close and she looks at him like wait what the heck is he doing but like she realizes wait this is kind of sexy like what is he doing but i like it but and that in itself is kind of the um, parentheses over the whole Kabedon culture is like showing his dominance over her is some like I don't know what it's igniting in her but it's problems like it's like it's cultural problems like these not a like what Kabedon when done right and done in the right circumstances can 
uh, elicit a good reaction from a female. But however, because of that kind of overarching uh, patriarchal standard there, you get this kind of, I guess, allow like allowance by young boys who think that it's okay to be able to do that on a regular basis. And that's kind of why I wanted to bring up this term in particular, because it may um, explain a little bit of George's way of um, interpreting how to act around females, but at the same time, like he ta he does take it far, and we see that he takes it far. Mm, it's a it's a very I would say uh, hmm it's it's a very uh, way to show how you are the dominating factor within the relationship. It's the idea behind it essentially, and how George attempts to use it is you won't know that you like it until I do it to you. And when you say it out loud like that, it sounds horrible, because it is. End of Absolutely, sentence. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it, what kind of, like, pissed me off the most in all of this is when um, she is mo she's moving into his house, and Arashi and the other uh, people there discuss George making a move on her. And Arashi says, George is a gentleman. <laughs> Yeah, like, a uh, big surprise there that the uh, other dude in the group would back him up. Exactly, and, like, they begin joking about how, um, like, Arashi goes, like, you did something, didn't you? And he, he just laughs, and they're like, oh my god, you did it, boy! Like... Oh, George, uh... you card. <laughs> you piece of not appropriate word. <laughs> that, see, that's why I just couldn't get into this film, because the relationship between Yukari and George is the centerpiece. It is the entirety of the yeah. film. It informs every plot decision that goes forward, because their whole relationship is him telling her what she wants and her agreeing. Yeah. There is, like, very little to move away from that. Like, he, he ostensibly kidnaps her, uh, guilts her into uh, being the model for them, uh, by, like, just putting it in her head constantly. And then he keeps sprinkling their conversation with this bullshit. Like, you don't know who you are, do you? Like, some something that you tell to a woman to trick her into thinking that you're deep. Mm-hmm. And what's ironic is that her teacher also repeats this phrase to her um, because she is, like, her grades are going down because she's hanging out with these group of weirdos. And the, she's being told, you don't know who you are. So don't allow these people to tell you that, but... She, like, Yukari is her own bag of problems. Like, and again, we don't want to victim blame here, but she was just desperately looking for the voice to tell her that she could be pretty. Exactly. And this, I think that kind of, like, rounds into the whole hell versus paradise kind of paradigm here, where this is what I was kind of looking forward to, because with Yazawa Ai's work, she, like I said before, she's very, very good at complex, um, deep, uh storylines and she's able to kind of take in the entire female psyche and put it onto a fantabulous i like that word fantabulous um plot line here and they attempted to do that like yazawa i deepness thing with the hell versus paradise um shift here so paradise in their in their sense is the atelier or their workshop that they um have constructed and Paradise is where all their happy things, and it's their ha haven, and it's their studio with lots of sparkly dresses, and, you know, it's basically, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, Chris? I, I, Paradise kind of covers it, right? Hellhole, hellhole, that's the one. So, oh, that's a completely um, sparkly hellhole. Sparkly hellhole. I mean, I like sparkles as much as the next person. I have a sparkly backpack and everything, but um, yeah, that's a lot of sparkle for uh, Aruba's taste, and that's saying a lot. Well, like, um, it's, it's like, have you ever listened to a college student tell you about like their ideal future? This is like that mindset is what the uh, Paradise Kiss group is stuck in. Exactly, and this is where, um, and they try to do that Hell versus Paradise paradigm when Yukari moves out from her mother's house and has to look for a job, and then um, George says, now she has to endure further hell by, by working in the real world, 
And as she's looking for a job, she notices that a lot of them require her to be a high school graduate, which she is not. Um, and she think like she's thinking to herself, doesn't the fact that I come from a good school mean enough? Um, and then we realize like that her future could be a lot worse because she turns the page and there is a, a huge ad for a hostess job in which no experience at all is required. And we're like, oh, shit, she's about to go down that hostess line. She's going to be drunk. She's going to, you know, be with the wrong man. But oh, I mean, God forbid you take charge of her future and not be dependent on George to open the next door for her. Exactly, right? But, um, no, she model. She go be model. She go be model. She make the money with the model. And why? That That's the most frustrating thing about this film is that Yukari is, like, welled up in all of this, like, personal struggle about appeasing to uh, her mother's outlook on life about, like, the importance of school and how that reflects on her. And she puts in the work, get, gets the grades, gets to a very good school, and then just gives it up for the prospect of being a model. Now, yeah. I t I'm not saying to any female listeners out there you shouldn't think that you are beautiful you should everyone should but to then see that as a source of income it's very hard to become a model here's the thing this is where my kind of experience comes in um because i want like when she she doesn't declare at in the beginning that she wants to be a model she declares that at the very, very end, and once she declares that, that's when she actually goes big. And this is where the whole work hard and you'll get what you want kind of Japanese trope comes in, but at the same time, you know, it is still, you're, we don't see her struggles. Um, Which, she... I, I would love to see that. I would love to exactly. see Yukari fighting for that dream. And to, because that would need to be her possessing that dream and following through with it because in my mind this is still george's manipulation yeah it, it does feel a lot like george's mani mani manipulation by this point especially like because it's at the very end of what we've seen george do to her um however coming from somebody who has declared that she wants to be something that is very not very much not conventional um and wanting to be taken seriously as that if she maybe portrayed a little more seriousness in her decision and not based it off of like a boy boyo you know i would have a lot more respect for her because if she genuinely truly wanted to be a model we needed to see that struggle we needed to see her be hungry for it we needed and we saw it a little bit with her catwalk when her mother was in the audience and she wells up um and of course she she gets a huge standing ovation at a on a runway because why but okay um but... i, I, I want to talk about that soon but keep going all right but you know we want like declaring that she wants to be a model is not the bad part it is the fact that she declared she wants to be a model after she received the manipulation from this uh weirdo doo-doo head that and is basically trying to be successful for the sake of not her but him that's where I draw the line because she very well could work towards becoming a model and I would have very much appreciated her struggle. What is that sound, Chris? Oh, it's my chair creaking. <laughs> okay. Um, but I very much would have appreciated that struggle um, being portrayed on screen. But no, we get that. I want to be a model for George's sake. Now look at me be an actual model. Like, that's the very... Uh problematic thing about this film is that her want to be a model is completely rolled up into George's grade on his final project. So I I can't be a I can't be knowledgeable on how uh Japanese art academies work. Uh but the Izawa Art Academy, which is like the central uh school that all the members of Paradise Kiss go to, for whatever reason, their final project for their fashion school uh, it involves a group project where everyone gets together into groups and designs uh, clothes for a runway. And this whole competition, and it's, it's, it's phrased as a competition, framed as a competition, which I just don't understand. Like, 
are they competing against one another? Because none of those fashions are kind of in the same school. Like, they, the, the, uh, the, co the dress that they put forward uh, for their final project is like a nightgown, is like formal wear. While the other ones we see in that in that runway montage are range from like spring wear, from active wear. It's, and I don't know how this academy works. Are they like, if you do bad, if your model does a bad job, do you fail? Because the model doesn't go to the school. They pick the model. Like, I don't know why the school doesn't offer models to them. This whole competition, this whole like plot point makes absolutely no sense to me. I think uh, they included that plot point because um, if you recall, he has a rival. So we have the whole Raibaru kind of aspect going on for uh, George here because now barely, he has somebody... Barely he has a model. That, does, that It's like introduced in the zero hour before... Raibaru, rival. No, zero hour, I said. Oh, I thought you said model. Barely he has a model. No, no, no. Okay. So <laughs> but it's, yeah, it's he, it is so, barely, yeah. It introduced so late in the film and doesn't matter at all. Uh, it was introduced briefly in the very, like, not very beginning, but closer to the beginning when we very first see the um, art school, um, but it's not dwelled upon until later on, ha halfway through the film, when her, his rival decides to come over and have a party with him. And uh, a scene that kind of stuck out to me was he says, like, he's looking at the group of girls and explaining to Yukari that he did her, he did her, he did her, but he didn't do her and then stops, like, he didn't do so so to say he did not have sex with his rival and that scene in particular of course um that was one of that was another uh striking scene that made me feel less sympathetic for george um i mean he's a great guy like <laughs> don't you usually tell that to your uh captive uh roommates like yeah all these women here yep you know it yeah exactly right it, the fact also like the fact is that the, um, they tried so hard to keep Yukari as a student because they had all these little scenes where she clearly wasn't... She was studying in the apartment before uh, they got here, and she knocks over her pencil case, and I'm like, that's such a student-y little girl thing to do. And then they have the group of girls over, and then, the, and then he decides to tell her who he slept with. Like, why? Why is that necessary? Why? I mean, it, it could be to say that like I didn't sleep with her that's why she's my rival because she wouldn't sleep with me because she's a strong independent woman but no like I don't I just don't get it like uh, the majority of things that go on at Yuzawa Art Academy just baffle me like I don't know how that place works it's clearly like a independent uh independently funded rich kid school for those who are like artistically inclined <laughs> who couldn't really make it in the traditional Japanese uh, school system it's why it's such a sh like a culture shock to yukari when she gets there just to see like how everyone is a free spirit there and you just don't understand them <laughs> one one phrase in particular oops sorry uh one phrase in particular that stuck out to me when she saw the school was when she uh sees a girl walking by in her own custom fashion and she says no bra no pa which means no bras no panties and <laughs> traditionally free-spirited school like like yeah. they do what they want there isn't that isn't that the ideal, ladies and gentlemen? Aren't rules stupid? Right? Like, why have them in the first place? Why Why can be so rigid, you know? <laughs> yeah, I, like breaking, breaking hate, the fashion rules. Yeah. I hate that school. I hate it so much. I just don't <laughs> Like, I don't get it. I don't know how that place stays afloat if, like, so Paradise Kiss is, like, a part of that school. Like, all the... All the work they are doing is for that program. Really? I, I found it more like it's their first step towards their dream. Um, no, no, but they're students at the yeah. school, right? They're, they're part of the fashion program. Yeah. So, so, like, why are they doing all their work off campus? Not enough space. I mean, you know how many study spaces are at Laurier, Chris? <laughs> this, is, this isn't a traditional university. It's yeah. an art academy with a fashion exactly, yeah. school. But, and then, like, why wouldn't the school for the the final project offer a model to you like why is it on your team to go find someone on the street to model your clothes for you why ah god i'm so frustrated <laughs> by the school i don't know if to me it's the, I, I i feel like when i saw it i'm like that looks like a fun school to be at it just looked fun the atmosphere looked um quite 
uh, carefree, if anything. And like, I was really allured by all the fashions on the campus because I'm like, oh, I would like to create that. You see all the uh, little individual individual um, choices that every single student has made there. And it, to me, it just it did seem fun. But the semantics and the um, I guess the rulings and the competition. Yeah, that's a little cheesy and over the edge. But I mean, I honestly would not mind being enrolled there if I were truly, truly interested in fashion. And... It, it's, it's a school, though, that can't exist outside of a plot for a movie like yeah and just uh we should also mention that like in terms of fashion uh there is a lot of pretty fashion on display in this film <laughs> like i i'm not made of stone uh i i didn't like the movie but i said like oh that's a nice outfit it's um it's like the kind of the same appeal that i had with phantom thread and not like it's it's also that where that comparison comes from is that a lot of the appeal of phantom thread is just watching beautiful clothes on display um yeah th- but I would much prefer uh, Reynolds Woodcock and um, <laughs> Irene, I think her name is from uh, Phantom Threat. I prefer that relationship to George and Yukari. But uh, this is like uh, I said before the podcast, this whole film is like a cosplayer's paradise. Like just to, <laughs> just to see all these characters on display, their natural looks, which are like carried over from the manga and like the anime it's like a lot of it is unchanged but just a little bit updated for the times uh like cause, exactly yeah and the original manga itself i don't think we meant we mentioned this before but was serialized in a fashion magazine because uh jo- jose uh the jose genre of manga is heavily is heavily focused around looks around uh character design or around like outfits yeah it's especially very significant to note that it was serialized in the fashion magazine rather than like um what is it like jose uh, i don't even know I, I don't know the uh jose magazines anymore but shonen yeah, jump for girls sh- yeah shonen jump for girls that's exactly what i was gonna say um but i yeah i found myself actually writing down the outfits that are actually still like quite fashionable today like for example uh miwako's slip dress over her t-shirt uh, Miwako's overalls. Um, I wrote down that I have one of the same hats that Yukari has. Um, I also like Miwako in general. Okay, Miwako, fashion icon. I'm just saying, saying it right now. I'm like, I want to be her when I grow up. But <laughs> despite it, the fact that it's the hair for me, it's a it's a wonderful do. Oh, it's it's so cute. I I absolutely adore I adore Miwako in this movie. Um, Arashi, yeah. however, can go to hell. Like that fake punk look. Fuck off. No. <laughs> with the neon with the neon frosted tips like <laughs> the like, frosted hair <laughs> l- let's see him go against like a real uh japanese bike gang see how he fares yakuza versus arashi arashi meeting storm and not arashi the band which now i'm gonna sing their song so we may have to end the episode before i start singing <laughs> not a bad idea <laughs> uh is there anything else you wanted to talk about uh i got all of my grievances out in the air and just to push it one more time i didn't like this film i think it's a very unimportant blip in the contemporary sphere of japanese cinema it's solely produced to sell tickets and appeal to young teenage girls and it, i'm not that idealized <laughs> demographics so i couldn't really go for it uh just to get my frustrations out on george the bad friend and rapist and oh it, i guess we should talk about the ending right yeah i literally wrote down uh for my very very last line in my notes and then they kiss the end yeah uh george they uh they don't do as well as they hoped in the uh weird yazawa art academy fashion competition which is also their final grade proceedings and it doesn't make any sense uh, oh my god it's named after the manga manga artist it is yeah that's nice <laughs> i'm sure she loved that i just noticed wow i'm slow uh but moving on from that uh they kind of split the group up and you uh yukari goes her own way becomes a professional model renowned the world over and george becomes an independent designer with isabella and yeah despite all they went through she comes crawling back to him they meet in new york share a kiss and i assume had a very healthy relationship yeah (laughs) it's not like there's any kind of like 
demons dwelling behind the door there that could ever come out at inopportune times. No, it was a relationship based on evenness, love, and equality and understanding. And not asshole hormones. Nope. No, he's he's just an all around great guy who's also nat- <laughs> who, who's also like I hate this idea that the film makes sure to tell you that he's just naturally talented. Like, he, like there's an interview between his uh, teacher and his father, and they say like, "Where did he get this from?" It's like, "Oh, he's just naturally talented." Like, fuck you. Is it a gift or is it prison? <laughs> who knows? <laughs> but yeah, I think I got. I think I got all my frustrations but at the same time the movie was fine (laughs) it's not as the only thing that was spectacular for me was the soundtrack which made me feel very happy and very uh involved with the film but um yeah now that i'm a good amount of years older and a good amount of woke more (laughs) um and understand and having participated in the me too movement as well um yeah this movie can go straight to hell although we will reach into hell and pull out isabella the only good character yeah despite the fact that she's played by a um (laughs) by a cis white no i was gonna say cis white male but like cis cis, yes cis hetero male like, uh, I mean, we have to give props to a film from 2011 to have some kind of trans representation, especially in a country known for its uh, prominent anti-LGBT stance. But, yeah, like, uh, we've discussed it before. Uh, Isabella's tr- identity as a trans person, uh, trans uh, female, is only really used to soften George. Yeah. Which... Did we discuss? Oh my gosh, did we discuss this, or? Not in the episode, before the episode. We discussed it before, okay. Okay, yeah, and the way I saw it, it was that, um, yes, while it was used to soften George a bit, it was quite significant because um, the tra- there are trans idols in Japan who um, often reveal their struggles with finding love, and that, and there's like a stigma behind them that they you know, should be referred to their birth, um, to their assigned, uh, gender. And, um, one of the most prominent, did I talk about Haruna Ai in the episode? No. Okay. So Haruna Ai, one of probably the most, uh, prominent transgendered, um, uh, transgendered, uh, idols out there. She, um, was, she revealed on a talk show that she was on an international trip and a man proceeded to try and kiss her. However, she had to proclaim, I am man. So even though she has had the surgery to become fully female, even though she has gone through the hormones to become fully female, even though she has went through ev- like every aesthetic choice to become fully embodied, sexu- like uh, to become a female, she still has to reveal this on an international trip that she is a man, and therefore the man should not waste his time with her. Yeah, it's a, that's a kind of a common theme between every like nation's uh, treatment of trans people. It's like we like to fetishize trans uh, people, but we never like to deal with them on any kind of human level. Uh, and that's this is also just to say, just to uh, amend something you just said there. Even if you're not, if if you're like pre-op or you uh, don't present as female but identify as female, you're still female. You're you're good. But yeah, exactly. We, we are we are a pro uh, trans podcast, obviously. Yes, we absolutely are. We are. Um, I, I did appreciate that amount of Isabella's story where they actually referred to her as her. Um, but unfortunately, within the East, trans rights are quite um, stagnant, if anything. I do know that Pakistan recently, a religious clergy has allowed trans people to finally get married because they deem them as humans too, finally. Um, they're improving. But at the same time, it's the East, and it will take time. It's a slow process, and incrementalism is a bitch, but, you know, it's the only way it's getting done. Uh, yeah. I would absolutely love to cover a LGBT-themed uh, Japanese film on this podcast. Yes, I tr- Yes, I was hoping you would say that, because I, I got some works in me. <laughs> I, I, and I know a couple of great examples of 
this one uh, male director from not too long ago, uh, he kind of came into Providence uh, on the international stage before Japan, obviously, for his works in that in that range. Like I, and not to like uh, preempt an episode here, but I also recently watched uh, Taboo by Oshima Nagisa, and that is a wild ride to the ideas of the male gaze on men on men potential podcast it is oh absolutely i mean because you're too scared to do in the realm of the senses <laughs> i mean that's gonna have to be for our uh sideshow jay cunt and her bitch <laughs> we that's the joke that does not play on the <laughs> on the podcast that is a personal joke between us all right uh, oopsies <laughs> Anything else you want? Like, I've got over my shit about this film. I just think it's really bland, uh, stereotypical, and really watered-down version of what I assume to be is a much more... a much better-handled manga. Yeah. All I gotta say is, and then they kiss. The end. They shared a kiss in some kind of... paradise, if you will. Yes, that's a good line. And then they take their tops off. <laughs> okay, that's it. The episode's over. Uh, th- <laughs> thank, thank you very much for listening to our the latest episode of Egg and Nights. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Egg and Nights. Uh, our WordPress is Egg and Night Podcast at WordPress.com. Uh, my personal Twitter is at CinemaCreep. Aruba, do you have a Twitter? I do not anymore, actually. So, um, unfortunately, I will be unfollowable for most media. It- for uh, in the foreseeable future, I will let you know the, the podcast. Podcast will be first the first to know if I resume um, being on social media. But until further notice, unfortunately, I can't provide you with much. <laughs> so but, here, here is Aruba's yeah. uh, cell phone number. It is. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> bye. We ain't gonna reveal that. Bye. Take care, everybody. <laughs> See you later.